I invite you, if you'd like, to turn to Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18, we're going to read verses 9 through 14. Commonly called the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. And before we read it and look at it, let's uh, pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and for the clarity that it shines not only into the world, but into our hearts and lives. We ask that as we study these things, that you would display to us where we are spiritually so that we can be encouraged as your people. We pray that you would teach us uh, what it is that you'd have us to know from this so that we will be those who are humbled and thus will be exalted one day by you rather than those who are exalting ourselves and will one day be devastatingly humbled by you. We pray that you will grant these things for Jesus' sake. Amen. Luke 18 at verse 9, he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Thus far, the reading of God's word. May he bless it to our hearts and lives this morning. Beloved congregation of hope, Church and everyone with us here uh, this morning, this is a parable about righteousness or right standing before God, about being approved of by God. It's arguably the biggest issue in all the Bible. God created us in true knowledge, righteousness, and holiness to have a right standing before him. Adam and Eve sinned, and now by nature as human beings, we no longer have a right standing with God. We are his enemies and we are actually unrighteous instead of approved by him and righteous. And this parable answers the question of how can I get God to approve of me? How can I get on good terms with God? Again, it's an issue all throughout the Bible. Job in Job 25, 4 asks, how then can man be in the right before God? Psalm 143, 2, enter not into judgment with your servant for no one living is righteous before you. Ecclesiastes 7.20, Surely there's not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. And Paul in Romans 3 just lays it out. Verse 10, None is righteous, no not one. Verse 20, By works of the law, no human being will be counted righteous or justified or approved in God's sight. So what we have before us really is two case studies. The Pharisee is a case study and a person trying to become righteous by oneself. And the tax collector is a case study and someone trusting in God to provide him a righteousness. And Jesus told this parable in verse nine, 
uh, for a reason. He told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. The language trusted is the word from, uh, we get often translate uh, persuade. Uh, so there were people in his midst. There have always been people throughout history, and there still are people who are trusting in themselves. They're persuaded. They are confident of something. And what they're confident of, what they are persuaded of in and of themselves, is that they're righteous. They have a right standing before God. They've earned it. They've amassed it. They don't need God to provide it. They have provided it for themselves. And they are convinced of this. And all around the world today, there are people who are firmly, confidently believing that because of one of these things is true of them, they are righteous before God and they are okay in the judgment. They're confident that they're righteous because they are not as bad as some people. That's one of the ways people will justify themselves in the sight of God. That's their hope. They believe God grades on a curve. Sure, I'm not perfect, but I've got a B and everybody else has a C and a D. So on the judgment day, God will grade on the curve and I'll actually get the A and I'll be fine because I'm better than other people. Or secondly, they believe they're fine because they've come a long way in cleaning up their lives. They're not as sinful and as bad as they used to be. They trust in the changes they have made in their lives, believing that they are acceptable to God now because they're no longer as big a sinner as they used to be. Or three, they believe their good works outweigh their bad deeds. Even Pharisees believe they sinned. And those who trust in their own righteousness almost always have a knowledge that they sin and fall short, but they're confident that God will use a scale. I've got more good deeds than bad. I'm fine in the judgment. And so though there's three ways that all around the world, people are living in self-righteous religion. It's the way of the cults. It's the way of all other world religions other than Christianity. And so their trust, people's trust is really in their ability to make good choices more often than they make bad choices, or at least more often than most of the other people in the world. And then they're fine. We're told something else. Jesus told this for the sake of those who trusted in their self-righteousness and treated others with contempt, verse 9. So that's a, a sign of self-righteousness. The Pharisees and people who are self-righteous treat others with contempt. It's literally to treat them as a nothing, to treat them as insignificant, to ignore them, to throw out as nothing, to regard something as lacking any value. That's how the Pharisees regarded those who weren't Pharisees. There is nothing. Luke 23, 11, Herod with his soldiers treated Jesus with contempt and mocked him. Same language. Just ridicule, scorn, hatred, like less than a human being. It's a harsh condemning treatment of others where you treat them like they don't even exist. They're just not worth your time. They're literally nothing. And I want us to catch this before we walk into the parable itself. For the sake of these people, those who believe they are approved by God because they are better than others or because they've improved themselves or because they believe their good deeds outweigh their bad deeds, to them, Jesus told this parable. Catch that. Verse 9. Jesus told this parable to them. So no one can say, oh, God doesn't love and have a heart for the repentance of those who are self-righteous. No, he told this parable to them who trusted in themselves. Why? To wake them up. To give them truth that they could munch on. To give them opportunity to repent. 
I want us to see three things in the parable. First of all, we'll take a look at the two men, then the two men's prayers or their attitudes as they are evidenced in the prayers. And then the surprise There's a real, real turn of events here. So first, the two men, verse 10, two men up uh, went up into the temple to pray. Now, this is a very common everyday occurrence, nothing special about this. Jesus is just using something from everyday life uh, in the days of first century Jerusalem life uh, to illustrate uh, his point. The references to praying, they went up to the temple to pray, but this would have been in conjunction with the offering of the morning or the evening sacrifice. Remember, then the altar of incense was uh, offered, uh, incense was offered there. Prayers would go up and people would pray during this time. So at some time in the morning and sometime in the afternoon or evening, uh, an offering would be made and people would go and pray when the incense was offered up as well. So we might be thinking this is a private prayer, and actually Jesus puts this in a public setting. Now the first character that we run into in verse 10 is a Pharisee. We're told there's one was a Pharisee, one was a tax collector. Now a Pharisee is a special breed of people, especially a special breed of Jew and a special breed of Jewish religious leader. They're one of a few thousand people who are experts in the law and particularly at applying the law to everyday situations of the people, the Jewish people. They knew the law of God. They knew how to apply it. They read the Bible. They respected it a lot. They thought that by doing all of this, they were doing what pleased God. The Pharisee was a church man, a great Bible student, and known for prayer and for his giving and fasting and self-denial. They were among the most respected people religiously in their day. And I want us to catch that. They were highly respected among those who were religious. Jesus tells us there's a second kind of guy, a tax collector. Now, this was someone who was viewed as a sellout to the Romans. The tax collector was often, in most cases, a very rich person because not only would he collect taxes for Rome, he would also pad his own pockets by charging just a little more and if you have the authority of the Roman government behind you, who's really going to stop you from doing it? <laughs> so they were usually rich people think Zacchaeus. They were known thieves, but they had the authority of the government behind them. So what was one to do? If you were related to a tax collector that was a dishonor to you, you would not highlight that in the public world. Oh, I've got a, a son or a daughter. They do this. And <laughs> I thought you had five kids. So I've just got four. <laughs> What about that fifth one? We know you got fifth one. No, that they just died, right? You would not want to say, oh yeah, my fifth child or whoever it was is a tax collector. Not something you would go around bragging about. Tax collectors were both feared and hated. They were hated by everyone in the temple. So the fact that he was there was a really weird thing. In fact, if you heard this parable, you'd be thinking, why is the tax collector going to the temple? And if you were the tax collector, you'd be thinking, why am I here? I don't want to be in the temple. <laughs> I'd rather go home or anywhere else. And so already there's a bit of a startling thing going on. The Pharisee was a well-respected church member. The tax collector was the very opposite. There wouldn't be a soul alive except Jesus who wanted this tax collector to be in their church. In fact, if this person came to the door of the average church, there would be many who would say, I think you need to find a different place to be. These men couldn't be more different. So then... We see there are two different prayers. 
Verse 11, the Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus. The translation of the Pharisee having stood to himself prayed this. That's verse 11, literally. The Pharisee stand, having stood to himself prayed this. And the question is, does the to himself refer to his prayer so that he's praying to himself? Or does the to himself refer to his standing so that he's standing by himself? <laughs> and you can take your pick. It actually may be both. He's standing by himself. Remember, they're in the temple, court of the Gentiles, court of the women. We've got the court of the priests. We've got the place where the men can go. He's probably standing as close to the temple as he can possibly get because they believe that the closer you can get, the more important you are. And so he is going right to the front as close as he can get with all eyes on him. He's standing to himself. Hey, look at me. I'm holier than everybody else here. And likely even praying to himself, meaning this. He's addressing God. God, I thank you, of course. But his prayer is actually for his own praise. It's to himself in that way. And the reason we could surmise this is from Matthew 6, 5. When you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. They love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. So regardless of whether the to himself refers to his standing or his praying, we know that his prayer is a show. What's his prayer? Verse 11, he prayed this way, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. This is quite a prayer. He's praying to God, directly addressing God, but he's really speaking to others about himself. In his mind, there are two categories of people, the us and the them. And he spends his time thanking God that he's not like the them. The language is fairly straightforward. Extortioners, right? Those people who steal, they rob. People who are unjust. They don't treat others well. They're not righteous. They don't care about uh, doing good. Adulterers, those who just cheat, those who are disloyal. Or even like this tax collector, right? This known thief. Now, some have surmised that extortioners, unjust, and adulterers is really a description of all tax collectors in general. And so he's building his case, and then he points out the tax collector because tax collectors were extortioners, they were unjust, and they had plenty of money to commit serial adultery in the form of prostitution whenever they wanted to. So it's possible that he's just heaping up descriptions of this tax collector. But in any case, he's thankful that he's not like those common sinners and wretched people over there. He also mentions something positive. Verse 12, I fast twice a week. Now in the Old Testament, there's only one passage which commands fasting in the law. Leviticus 16, 29, it shall be a statute to you forever that in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall afflict or fast yourselves and shall do no work. There were many occasions you could fast, but the command was, hey, you've got to fast once a year. That was the command. So for the Pharisee to fast twice a week was incredible. This Pharisee did it in order to look good, though. Matthew 6, 16, when you fast, don't look gloomy. The hypocrites do that. They disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. So their twice a week fasting was really a two times a week display to others of just how pious and righteous they were. But he says, look, I fast twice a week. He, he's not lying about that. Verse 12, I give tithes of all that I get. 
Again, he was a giving soul. He tithed mint, dill, and cumin. Matthew 23, Jesus says, yeah, those things you ought to have done. You just neglected the weightier matters of the law. So tithing was good. He's saying, look, I, I fast twice a week. I tithe. He's a generous person. He is giving toward the work of God, toward the temple. There's nothing wrong with that. But again, Matthew 6, he gives that he may be praised by others, right? Jesus says, don't sound a trumpet like they do. When a Pharisee gave, it's as if they're sounding their trumpet. Hey, everybody, look at me. I'm giving. So what he was, was a generous person. He was a fasting person. And he was thanking God that he was like that. The Pharisee compared himself to those whom he thinks are more sinful than him. His righteousness is based on winning a comparison with others. And this is one of the biggest differences between the attitude of a Pharisee and the attitude of a Christian. A Pharisee is after the praise of men, and they know the way to receive such is to make themselves look better than others. And here was this guy counting his righteousness, thanking God in front of everybody else who could look at him in the temple, and they could admire him. And if you were an onlooker of the Pharisee offering this prayer, you would have said something along the lines of this, wow. And that's a genuine wow. Here's a holy individual. Tax collector. This guy who doesn't belong in the temple, verse 13, offers a very different prayer. The two men are different. Their two prayers are very different. And if you look at verse 13, we're told the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast. The scene changes here. You have this government worker who works, I guess, would have a combination job between the Department of Treasury and the IRS, right? He's going to enforce people who don't pay taxes. He's also going to collect them as the Treasury would. He shows up in the temple, and this would have provoked disdain in the hearts of all of his audience members. Again, why is he here? And the tax collector would have said, yeah, why am I here indeed? Notice he stood far off. In the minds of the Jews, again, the closer you get to the most holy place, the holier you are. The tax collector does not presume that he belongs there. He does not presume to walk into, hey, I'm going to go to the court of the Gentiles. No, he stands afar off. He's a long way off wherever he is. He understands that he does not have a place in this worship of God as one who is close to God. He realizes that he is inadequate before God in and of himself. Verse 13, he would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. Now, again, this is not a commanded posture of prayer where we'd say, oh, I guess the way to pray is not to look up into heaven. No, it was common that when the posture of prayer, you would lift your hands up and you would pray looking up into heaven. That's a great posture for prayer. We tend to close our eyes and fold our hands. But this tax collector, on account of his understanding of his own nature, his own sin, didn't even have the confidence to look up into heaven but indeed was looking elsewhere, likely at the ground. And what, what really captures uh, our minds ought to be verse 13, but he beat his breast. Now, the only other time this, expe this expression, beat your breast, was used in the New Testament is in Luke 23, verse 48, all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle. The spectacle is Jesus on the cross. When they saw what had taken place, returned home, beating their breast. The crowd saw something so disturbing, so mind-blowing, so emotionally tumultuous that they went home beating their breasts. 
Now, it was not uncommon for a Jewish woman to beat her breasts at a funeral or in much anguish, but Jewish men did not do this. And here you have this tax collector beating his breast, an expression of remorse, an expression of unworthiness, an expression of tremendous inner turmoil. And Jesus says, here was his prayer, God be merciful to me, a sinner. Now the language be merciful to me is a translation that hides what is underneath the word. It's literally make an atonement for me. Hebrews 2 Verse 17 uses the word this way. He had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. It's the same language used in Romans 3, talking about the propitiation that Jesus' blood made for us. This tax collector is crying out to God, saying this, God Make a sacrifice for me. Be propitious to me. And he's doing it at the time of day in the temple when the lamb would be sacrificed and the prayers were to go up. And so what's clear is that this tax collector actually gets the meaning of the sacrifice. <laughs> Lord, that lamb that was just slain, that daily offering, do that for me. I need atonement. Make atonement for me through the blood of a sacrifice. And again, the language of us sinner, God be merciful to me, us sinner. There's actually a definite article before it. God be merciful to me, the sinner. Now when calling himself the sinner, he's putting himself in a class of people, right? You remember who Jesus was accused of hanging out with? Tax collectors and sinners. It's a category of people. Those who don't know the law those who don't care anything about trying to keep the law. That's a category of sinner. And then referring to himself as the sinner, he's using language that you can argue Paul uses in 1 Timothy 1. He considered himself to be the chief of sinners. Lord, be merciful to me. I'm the biggest sinner I know. Did you notice the complete absence of comparing himself to other people? He doesn't say, Lord, I'm the really big sinner, but there's other people just kind of like me. There's, there's worse, right? We can always think of worse. He just knew, Lord, I am the biggest sinner I know, and that's all that he thought about. I'm the biggest sinner I know. There is nobody, I know my heart, I know my mind, I know the kind of filth that resides inside of me. I know what kind of sinner I am. It is not a pretty picture. Now, in the minds of everyone standing in the temple area, in the parable, and in the minds of all Jesus' hearers as he taught them this parable, here is what most would take away from the parable so far. The tax collector is not going to heaven because he's an extortioner and a thief. He's unjust. He's taken what is not rightfully his. He's an adulterer. He can afford to pay prostitutes, etc. And they would also conclude this. The Pharisee is going to heaven. He is because he's generous and holy and doesn't have sex outside of marriage. He's a man of prayer. He's living a changed, disciplined life. He's a nice guy. He would never do anyone any harm. And his life is distinct. There are a lot of people, not only in Jesus' day, but also in our day today, who believe that the Pharisee is a Christian at this point. Because the world's view 
of those who are going to heaven would be almost completely embodied in what the Pharisee looks like. Oh, he's just outwardly really righteous. Those must be Christians. And then Jesus drops the clincher, which probably doesn't come as a surprise to any of us in this room because we know the end of the story. But here's the surprise, verse 14. I tell you, this man, the tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other. He went down to his house approved of God, declared righteous, counted righteous before God. That's what justified means. Now, there's not, I would argue, a single person in the crowd who heard this teaching that would have been prepared for what Jesus said, unless they had watched him minister so far. They would have thought, wait a minute, Jesus, you just misspoke. You've got to flip that around. It was the Pharisee who went home justified, right? No, it was the tax collector. Make an atonement for me. I need a sacrifice for me. And the Pharisee, he's dead in his own self-righteousness. That's what Jesus is saying, crystal clear. Now, why is this man justified? What does it even mean to be justified? Well, it's courtroom language, and I don't want to spend too much time on this because I didn't tell you from the start, but this is a longer than normal sermon, and we're trying to roll through this. But let me pause here for a moment and put this in perspective, right? Imagine walking into a courtroom, and you're on trial, and the prosecutor has rightly accused you of a sin, and you're guilty of it. There's no, you can't say, Your Honor, I was not guilty. No, there is no alibi. There's no excuse for it. Your Honor, I am guilty. Imagine standing in that courtroom, and the prosecutor stands up and says, Your Honor, this fool's broken every law in the books. And you say, yep, it's true. I'll have to pay for it. And then walks into the courtroom someone who says, Your Honor, indeed, this fool, and that's what we are by nature, has broken every law. But what I want you to do is I want you to take my record, because you know I'm a perfectly law-abiding citizen and I've kept every law. I want you to take my record and I want you to treat him like he's got my record. And I want you to take whatever punishment he deserves that the law requires, and I want you to give that to me. And the gavel comes down and says, so be it, done, declared righteous. Now, Jesus wasn't declared righteous in that exchange, was he? He was declared the sinner now. He's imputed with our sin. He who knew no sin has become sin in that exchange at that moment. That's his work on the cross. But did you catch what happened to we, the lawbreakers? We're declared righteous. The gavel banged down. You know what that means? We got to go out into that town, into that kingdom, into that world, and we get to live as those who are what? Counted righteous by God. That is incredible. And that's what Jesus is saying about this tax collector. Do you want to know who has been declared righteous by God? The tax collector, that wicked man. Why? Because he trusted in Jesus. Because Jesus' obedience is credited to his account through faith. That's why. Well, what about this Pharisee who keeps all these laws? His righteousness is like a filthy rag, to use the language of Isaiah 64, 6. The best that he can do is pathetic. And it's external only. It amounts to nothing. And so if you're that tax collector... You don't leave that courtroom saying, I'm going to pay you back for this. Thanks for bailing me out. I'll spend the rest of my life paying you back. You scratched my back. I'm going to scratch yours. No, what are we going to pay him back with? Our debt? 
Everyone who has been justified leaves that courtroom saying, wow, I, I give you my life. I'm in. Thank you. For the rest of my, whatever you want me to do the rest of my life, I'm in. I'm yours. Now, there are two kinds of people in this world. I want to close with this. I just realized I've got three sheets left. Better make some hay here. Two kinds of people in this world. Those who are trying to justify themselves is one kind. They've got a long list of things they think they need to do in order to make themselves acceptable to God. Bible reading, being nice, praying, going to church, teaching, tithing, giving money to the poor, fasting. There's a whole laundry list of things they're trying to avoid and also things they're trying to do. And it's usually selective. They'll be really good and really diligent at some things, but others they'll just pass on by because they're not able to or they have no desire to do them but they're trying. These are not asking God to make an atonement for them. Rather, they're asking God to consider their good works compared to their bad deeds and to make a judgment in their favor. Or they're thanking God that they're not as bad as other people and they're hoping that because they're better, they'll be fine. And the Pharisees should have known better and everybody who has ever read the Bible, who is trying to earn a righteousness their own should know better. The Pharisees should have from Abram's day, Genesis 15, 6, Abraham believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. What a great portrait of justification. And Isaiah 53, 11, by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous and he shall bear their iniquities. So that's one kind of person in the world. Those people who are trying to earn their way into God's approval. And then... There's a second category of people, and these are called believers, born-again Christians, who are looking to God to provide them the means by which they can be righteous before Him. And everyone who's a born-again Christian has cried out or called out in soul, in word, in some form, the exact same prayer that this tax collector did. Now the words will be different, right? But God, I need you to be merciful. I need you to lay down the life of your son. I need a substitute. I need Jesus to bleed. I need a sacrifice to be made so that I can be forgiven. That's what I need. Please offer that sacrifice. And every believer knows that God did offer that sacrifice. It hasn't happened yet in Luke 18, but it's about to, where God laid down the life of his own son so that we could have our sins atoned for and we could be made right with him. And then Jesus ends the parable, verse 14, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who exalts himself will be humbled. So kind of leaves us with a, something to work through, doesn't it? We can either toot our own horns and spend our lives trying to convince ourselves and other people that we're better than other sinners and therefore acceptable to God and then go to hell. Or we can stop comparing ourselves to others, realizing it doesn't matter even a little to God how we compare with others. And we can humble ourselves before God and we can trust in the atoning sacrifice he's made in Jesus Christ and we can go to heaven. The Pharisee is so consumed with keeping up appearances before man and with being praised and accepted by others, he can't see through the fog of his own goodness, his own self-righteousness. He can't see through it to the goodness of God, to the grace of God, 
to the sacrifice God makes for sinners in Jesus Christ, all he can see is everything that he's been trying to do. And if comparing himself to others was removed and he had to stand before the law of God, which demands perfection, what hope do you think he would have? What hope do you think any of us would have? None, right? C.S. Lewis said it well. What can you ever really know of other people's souls, of their temptations, their opportunities, their struggles? One soul in the whole creation you do know, and it is the only one whose fate is placed in your hands. If there's a God, you are in a sense alone with him. You can't put him off with speculations about your next door neighbors, right? This tax collector, unjust adulterers. You can't put God off with speculations about that. I thank you, God, that I'm just not like a, as bad as those people. You can't put them off with memories of what you have read in books. What will all that chatter and hearsay count when the anesthetic fog, which we call nature or the real world, fades away and the presence of God in which you've always stood becomes palpable, immediate, and unavoidable? What will it matter to the Pharisee or to anybody who's trying to amass a self-righteousness? What will it matter on the last day when your neighbor and the unjust person, the adulterer, and the tax collector aren't in the equation? And you're standing before the God of perfect holiness. And you realize that your righteousness stinks. And it is soaked in garbage. And it doesn't amount to a hill of beans. What will it matter on that day if we were just better than a few people in our own convoluted minds? It won't. And Jesus is telling a parable to people who think, that what will matter on the last day is that they were better than others. So let me bring this home. Which one are you? Which one am I? Either you and I are trusting in our own efforts to become right with God, or we're trusting in Jesus Christ's sacrificial death on the cross to make us right with God. If you're trusting in Christ, then you're justified. You have a right standing before God. You are approved by God. God fully and completely, 100% approves of you because you are standing in the righteousness of his son. You are standing in the righteousness which Jesus worked for and bled for and died for and obeyed for. You are justified. But if you're not trusting in Christ, then you're not justified. And your standing before God is not one of approval, but of condemnation. You are not approved by God. God fully rejects you and condemns you because you're standing in your own unrighteousness. It's a filthy rag. Now, which one are you? Sometimes we can figure that out by figuring out what we believe makes us acceptable to God. Think about that, right? Is there anything wrong with obedience, with generosity, with tithing, with fasting? No. What is wrong with it? Trusting in it. Relying on it as our standing before God. Anything wrong with Bible reading and prayer and going to corporate worship. No, good things. What's wrong? Trusting in it. That's what's wrong. These people trusted in themselves, the Pharisee did. So let me ask you, what are you trusting in to be made right with God? What are we trusting in? Jesus or something that we're doing? John Gerstner, let me close with this. He's sort of funny in a different sort of way, funny, and uh, I'm laughing because like, I, I can't believe you just said that <laughs> sort of a way, very blunt sometimes and, and to the point, really good stuff. Wrote a book on justification. In that book, he recounted this. A woman said to me after hearing me preach on sin, you make me feel so big, holding her fingers about an inch apart. 
And he said, I was shocked. And I replied, lady, that's too big, (laughs) much too big, fatally big. You and I are a minus quantity and all fallen mankind with us. Justification can only be by faith alone. And his point all throughout his book and in that as well is this. If there's anything other than Jesus that we're trusting in, if it's Jesus plus something else we're bringing to the table, then we are, we are lost, beloved. Or we're living in self-righteous pride and sin. God has provided all the atonement necessary in his son. Trust in that. And we are saved. And if there's any who are here or anybody that we know who's not here that we might be talking to that's wondering, yeah, why, why, why is my righteousness and why is my striving to obey not important to God? Why can it not matter to God? Because we're that fallen because God's standard is perfect holiness, because the judgment isn't going to be, hey, how are you compared to your neighbor? The judgment that we're going to be scrutinized with, the standard that we all have to meet is perfect righteousness, perfect obedience, beloved, perfect in every way. And if we fail at one point, then we are damned. That's why, we, that's why Jesus is the hero. That's why he's so important. He never failed once. And if we believe in him, we are found in him. But if we don't believe in him, then we are found in and of ourselves. And that is a devastating place to be, eternally devastating, if we're found in and of ourselves before a perfectly righteous and holy God. And my hope, I know all of our prayers here as believers, is that none of our friends, none of our families, none of the people we love would be found in and of ourselves, but would be found in Christ. Let's pray.